Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. He koonai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. So I'm taking a break just sitting at the top floor of the tropical forest. It's actually kind of cold outside and it's raining, but it's just so nice and warm in here, really humid. The reason we tend to call it a tropical forest instead of butterfly house is because we have all the other animals and just tons of tropical plants. And I'm just sitting here like watching the birds flutter around and chirp at each other and a few butterflies just floating around. The whole experience is a little surreal, to be honest, because it's just so different without anybody else around. Kia ora. Welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Klerken Kanan Tene. Two stories for you this week. Later, we visit my bubble and hear more from my housemate, Dr. Tony Stumbo, who you heard at the start. Tony is responsible for the tropical forest at Otago Museum and for taking care of all of the living things inside it including the hundreds of butterfly pupae that get shipped there each week. But first, myrtle rust has become a major problem in Aotearoa, infecting native plants across the country. Rust fungi is now being cultivated in a lab with the hope that understanding how it invades plants will help in the fight against it. Katie Gossett met the University of Canterbury team that is taking on this national pest. So I've got an image here of a spore. So it's a roughly 25 micrometer by 25 micrometer ball, I guess it's. I'm in the lab at Canterbury University with Sarah Sale, a PhD student in the biological sciences department. It's absolutely tiny. You cannot see them without the microscope. These are what the fungi uses to spread. And under the microscope today is yet another lab, but a teeny tiny one, just big enough to fit on a microscope slide. It's known as a lab on a chip. We'll get into that in more detail later on. But the samples that Sarah's been culturing that are now in the lab on a chip are rust fungi. Her work is part of a collaborative effort to halt a disease that's becoming a real issue in New Zealand. Wellington's inner-city eco-sanctuary, Zealandia, has recorded its first known case of myrtle rust. New figures show there have been 811 properties found to be infected with myrtle rust. And we're going to stay on this myrtle rust story and the infection found in Christchurch. Scientists taking part in a myrtle rust symposium this week say the disease is having a severe impact on some plant species here. The fungus that causes myrtle rust arrived in New Zealand in 2017 and it's been spreading across the country country infecting plants ever since. Precious plants like Puhutukawa, Rata, Eucalypts, Manuka and more. Originating in South America, it's believed to have been blown across the Pacific, arriving in Australia in 2013, then hitching a ride on the wind across the Tasman to Northland. It made it all the way to Christchurch in May 2021 and also turned up in the Wellington eco-sanctuary Zealandia a month later. Economic modelling on the impact of this pandemic strain warns of damage to our honey, forestry and Fijoa industries that reaches into the hundreds of millions of dollars, not to mention the birds and the bees. So 
the stakes are huge. The fight against the disease is being led by Beyond Myrtle Rust, a government-funded research program that aims to study the behaviour, ecology and impacts of myrtle rust. And one of its projects is Sarah's PhD, and she has her work cut out for her. Well, ultimately, I'm working with rust fungi. So they're a biotrophic pathogenic fungi, which basically means that they need a living host, in this sense, a plant, to survive, and that they cause disease to that plant. So because of this, they're currently unculturable. We can't grow them without the plant. Which brings us to step one in this challenging PhD So the first part of my research is actually getting to do this, is growing them without the plant, trying to get them to reproduce on artificial media. In other words, an artificial leaf, and it turns out that trying to create an exact replica of a leaf is quite a painstaking business. First it needs to be cleaned and dried so there's no moisture left. Ultimately we stick the leaf down on a double-sided tape in a dish. We then put on a material known as PDMS, two component um, elastomer that solidifies with higher temperatures. So I pour this over them. The leaf then needs to degas and let go of what's in it and that causes bubbles which Sarah doesn't want in her replica. So she has to wait until that process is passed and the leaf is then baked at a low heat for up to 24 hours. We then peel that off from the plant, digest away any remaining plant residues, and that is an imprint. It's basically the negative of the leaf surface. And then she goes through the same process with the imprint to create an exact copy of the leaf surface. This is a replica of a wheat leaf, and the spores are on top of the wheat leaf. You can see I've got you know, several spores with gem tubes and they're growing along the surface of the wheat. The artificial medium is already working to a point. It's not 100% complete because I want them to be able to go through their asexual cycle completely on this media. So there's a bit of work to get that part. Um, and also there's the second side. I'm working with three rust fungi, poplar rust, wheat leaf rust and myrtle rust. I've done poplar and wheat leaf but haven't yet had the chance to work with myrtle rust, so that'll be the next thing to properly complete that part of my thesis. There are differences between the rust fungi, but some similarities too, and so Sarah's research could also have implications for wheat leaf and poplar rust. So they also actually have you know, their own importance, and finding out information about them and being able to culture them will also help with you know, fungicide development for them as well. You know, New Zealand, we don't have as much of a problem with poplar or wheat, but it's still a massive problem in other areas in the world, particularly wheat. You know, it's the largest grown agricultural crop in the world. So it's important for that, but myrtle rust is the core part of my PhD. With us in the lab today and working alongside Sarah is University of Canterbury cell biologist Ashley Garrell, who knows only too well what Sarah's up against with this project. The rusts are notoriously difficult to complete their life cycle in that sort of environment. You actually need the host plant there, so they're difficult to actually study in a laboratory setting. You have to go and study them out in the field, and then there's a whole lot of different variables that come into play there. So what Sarah's doing is quite complex? Very, yeah. 
Yeah. So a lot of people have tried to culture these things, get them through the life cycles, and have failed. No pushes here. <laughs> <laughs> so step one's a big ask, but once that's done, there's another whole part to Sarah's doctorate. We hope that by doing this, we can then put them into the lab on a chip device and then measure the forces they're using to grow. So basically giving us an overall idea of their invasive growth and the forces they use to grow into and throughout these plants. And that's where Vulcan Nock comes in with his lab on a chip, that teeny tiny lab we talked about earlier. So what we're seeing at the moment on the microscope is one of our lab-on-a-chip devices. So you imagine a microscope slide, if you've ever used one in school. It's a glass slide that on top of it has a device made out of plastic. That's a, a flexible plastic in our case. It's a silicon elastomer that people use to seal their roof tiles, for example. The chip is made up of a series of tubes or channels joined together in a way that can control the flow of liquid. Uh, we can put more than just liquids in there, so we can put organisms in there that are requiring liquid to be present, uh, and they will grow in there because the channels tend to be about the same dimensions as the organisms or the structures that the organisms form. The system can be customised to fit different organisms, and in fact, Eye Changing World met Volkanok and Ashley Garrell back in 2017 when they worked on a similar project. They were using the chip to grow and test the forces of a water mould related to the Phytophthora, which causes kauri dieback disease. Four years on, it's Sarah's turn with rust fungi. Hopefully we'll be able to do two different things. So put the spores, so the, the reproductive unit of the fungi, onto these chips and then we're going to let them produce their cylindrical growth platform known as a germ tube. They're going to produce them and grow along these channels and then hit pillars. Now these little pillars are really important because they measure force. So the reason that fungi, like the one that causes myrtle rust, are able to invade plants is that they exert enough pressure to force their way inside a plant's cells. So these little pillars are flexible. And when they get pushed against by the fungi, that strength can be picked up by the force sensor. That will hopefully tell us information about the forces required for them to grow along the surface of the plant. The second one will then be their invasive growth within the media, which would likely mimic within the plant. These ones, we'd be taking a section of the invasive fungi, putting them in there and allowing those what are called hyphae. It's the same sort of thing, but it's an invasive one rather than a surface um, one like germ tubes, they'll grow along the channels again and do the same thing so that we can see the forces on the surface and the forces within the plant. And we can literally see those forces. They show up as movements against the pillar when we look at it through a microscope. Because we're looking down on it, the pillar that we use for force sensing looks like a circle, so we're just looking at the top of it. But if one of these tubes then starts growing against it, this circle will move in the direction that the germ tube is growing. And when we look at the movement of this or the change in position, if we know the distance that it has changed, we can use a formula to determine the force based on that movement of the pillar top. And remember I said the lab on a chip is absolutely tiny, so all this activity is happening on a scale that can't be seen without a microscope. Imagine 
you know, a human hair divided by two or three or four, and you get the sort of dimensions that we're dealing with. So it looks highly complex <laughs> when, when looking at it, and it, it is, in fact, highly complex. But at the same time, you wouldn't look at it and think that such a little piece of plastic was doing so much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't even see all of the detail with your naked eye, so when you look at it, you just think it looks quite fascinating and cool, and when you put colour through them, they look awesome. Like you, yeah, you'd never think that it would be so useful. You just think it looks cool. The lab on a chip will prove its use if it leads to products like, say, fungicides that are specifically designed to combat the pressure we know this fungi can exert. If we can target that, you know, especially in the germ to prevent them from, you know, even germinating and then the invasive growth stop them from growing throughout the host, it might be more effective whereas the current fungicides are much more generic and they only have a limited effect on rust fungi in particular. Sarah's seen what can happen in that situation when the fungi is able to take hold. For New Zealand in particular, they infect um, trees within the Myrtaceae family, so that includes Pahutakawa, Manuka, Fijoa, um, Allspice. Several of these in New Zealand are of economic, cultural and spiritual significance. Manuka and Manuka honey is a massive industry for Māori, and when myrtle rust infects you know, these different plants like Manuka, they basically stop flower production. If we don't have flower production, bees you know, won't be able to do their job and then we're not actually going to get any honey produced. So that would have a massive economic effect. There's also trees like a particular Pahutakawa tree known as Teranga. This is said to guard a sacred cave in which spirits pass on their way to the um, underworld. Infection of a tree that's of such you know, spiritual significance for Māori would be devastating. So it goes beyond just an economic issue for New Zealand. And it's spreading like no tomorrow. Which is part of what attracted her to the project. Sarah started her university career in engineering before switching to biochemistry and then an honours project in toxicology. And she was eager to take on a cross-disciplinary doctorate. After attending Ashley Garrell's lectures, she met with him in Vulcan Knock to come up with the Rust Fungi Project. We got talking and after the meeting I was pretty much hooked. <laughs> I just thought it sounded awesome getting to involve the engineering side. Not that many people get to do that, so to be able to you know, dive into that other completely different world just seemed really awesome. And also there's something super fascinating about fungi and I'm basically obsessed with them <laughs> now and so I just sort of became yeah, hooked on it. Ashley Garrell cautions that practical solutions like new fungicides may still be a way off. That is a real long-term sort of goal. I think in the short-term management of the diseases is the more sort of important thing. So transportation of plant materials around the country, that sort of thing. The other thing which is a factor in the spread of the diseases is climactic conditions. But with the way that climates are changing around the world, there's likely to be less of a barrier due to climate for the thing to be spreading. So it's likely to be a significant issue as we go forward in time.
and it's valuable to be working on something practical. It's always nice to have something which has applicability in the big world. I mean, I'm, I'm really driven by Blue Skies research. These organisms fascinate me. You know, you walk through a forest, you see beautiful mushrooms. They're, they're really intricate parts of the ecosystems in the forests, breaking down material. But when there are species which can cause disease and those diseases have impacts on those ecosystems and economically and, you know, as Sarah mentioned, spiritually, culturally, then it's nice to be able to apply that blue skies interest in research to a, a specific problem. And Sarah's pleased to be involved in the Beyond Myrtle Rust campaign, working collectively to achieve results for the country. I mean, it's really awesome. I've never been a part of something so big and collaborative, and there's so many people with incredible knowledge and doing incredible work. I mean, I've seen some of the work people are doing, and it's it's mind-blowing, and to be a part of that is, is awesome, and especially with you know Myrtle Rust being such a problem. You know, being able to be a part of hopefully remedying that is just, it's, you know, the, the best thing I guess a scientist can, can do. Thanks all. That was Katie Gossett speaking to Sarah Sale, a PhD student at Canterbury University. Katie also spoke to Associate Professors Ashley Garrell and Volker Nock. Ashley Garrell is a cell biologist and fungi specialist, while Volker Knox specialises in microsystems and has created Lab on a Chip to better monitor tiny organisms. Now, welcome to my house. Four of us live together in a house near the beach in Dunedin, all with backgrounds in science. Julia has a PhD in ecology and works in the botany department at the University of Otago. Jono did his doctorate in pharmaceutical chemistry and is now a teaching fellow in pharmacology. Does rock. And then there's Tony. Yo. Dr. Anthony Stumbo did his PhD in a type of parasite that infects fish eyes and has a background in behavioural biology. But now he works at Otago Museum. So I am the Tuhura and Living Environments Coordinator, which means I oversee the day-to-day operations of the Science Centre and also the overall living environments, such as the tropical forest. So during lockdown, Julia, Jono and I spend each of our days in our respective rooms, working from home on our computers. Tony, though, he has the responsibility of keeping a whole forest worth of living things alive. So I gave him a microphone one morning. All right, well, it's Wednesday morning of day eight of our second full lockdown in New Zealand, and I just got to the Otago Museum. I'm walking through the parking lot to get to the uh, back door of our tropical forest enclosure. I've been coming in most mornings during lockdown to take care of our animals, water our plants, and do any other essential things. The Otago Museum's tropical forest is a three-story area kept at an average of 27 degrees Celsius. And it is filled with tropical plants and flowers, as well as many critters that need to be cared for. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go into our locust enclosures and move all their old food from yesterday and their water dishes. And so we have two containers of locusts that we feed to various animals, especially the tarantulas and Shelly the terrapin. So now I'm going to feed the fish. Now we have about 15 goldfish in our pond. 
but they're actually breeding. So we have a number of juveniles here as well. And it's adorable. They just followed me. I walked from one end of the pond to the other and they know it's feeding time. I'm now at our giant African millipede enclosure. So I'm just gonna look at the food that they got yesterday, make sure it doesn't look too moldy. And we also have Goliath stick insects. Now these are really cool. The females can get up to 25 centimeters long. So we have two on display that I'm missing right now that are eating a little eucalyptus tree. We have three tarantulas. They each have their own little box enclosure, so they're behind glass. We have two Brazilian blacks and a Peruvian orange stripe. Now today is a day where I need to clean their water dishes. All right, now I'm going to prepare the bird food. Watch it three species of birds at the moment. We have Bengalese finches, zebra finches, and those two quails. They're actually all doing quite well. I think they enjoy having some time off from having members of the public around. All right, I'm back into the tropical forest. I've got some food for our red-eared slider, Shelly. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna feed Shelly a couple chunks of vitamin-enriched frozen fish, and I'm gonna try feeding her some lettuce. She doesn't really like to eat lettuce that much, but we gotta try to supplement her with some greens so she can get a variety into her diet. Come on, Shelly, eat your greens. Now this, of course, is the same for many zookeepers or animal carers across Aotearoa during lockdown. They're still going in daily to check on animals, to feed them and to keep them happy. What is a little bit different for the Otago Museum's tropical forest is that it is also a butterfly house. And there are still regular incoming shipments of butterfly pupae or chrysalis that must be processed and cared for. Kia ora, Tony. Uh, the pupae just arrived. It looks like a box from the Philippines. Yeah. While the museum is closed, boxes of pupae are delivered to Tony at our house for him to take directly to the museum and straight into the tropical forest quarantine room. So I just entered our quarantine room. And this is the room that we bring pupae in when they first arrive. Every butterfly house needs to have their own quarantine room. And this ensures that all pupae that arrive into the country are brought into a secure room where they will be held until the butterflies emerge. And we do have a responsibility to the New Zealand environment. Since we're importing foreign organisms, we take as many precautions as possible to make sure that we don't potentially release anything into the environment. That's why we have the secure quarantine room and we do these parasite checks every day. So these arrived today, so they actually got into Auckland late last week. So they initially came from the Philippines. So we get most of our butterfly pupae from the Philippines. We're actually, the Togo Museum is actually part of a organization called the International Association of Butterfly Breeders and Displayers. And uh, the whole point of that organization is to make sure that uh, people who display butterflies, such as us, work together with the people who breed the butterflies to make sure that it's done in a sustainable and conservation-focused way. 
Each box that arrives will have hundreds of pupae inside them. Because he's done this so often, Tony can recognize the species of butterfly pupae just by eye. So I just opened one of the smaller boxes and I can see a layer of our palo and our parus, our uh, Asian swallowtails and scarlet mormons, and they all look pretty good at first glance, which is exciting, meaning they're alive. They're the interesting little pupae, about two knuckles on my pinky long, and either green or light brown. They look almost like leaves or dried leaves, depending on the variant. Tony checks each one for parasites, logs how many of each species have arrived, and checks the condition of the pupae. Different butterfly species will spend different lengths of time in this stage, so Tony will prioritize the early emergers for hanging up. These are those butterflies that tend to come out of their pupae first. And Tony uses a system of metal rods that he can glue the pupae on, which then slot into shelves so that the pupae can hang down, as if they were dangling off a tree somewhere in a forest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put down six dollops of hot glue. And then by the time I finish that, the uh, glue from the first dot will be cool enough for me to put in the tip, very tip of the first pupae. And we're starting out with the uh, leaf wings because they're the ones that all look like they're close to emerging. This, as you can imagine, takes quite a while to do for hundreds of pupae. Once they're all hung on the rods, Tony will check and miss them each day until the butterflies emerge. Both Tony and I have the same fascination with this metamorphosis, and we had a chat about it later in my room. So it's a really cool process in which the caterpillar will actually attach their tail end to a plant and their body will compress and their outer skin will come off. The skin underneath that will actually harden into the chrysalis. And inside it goes completely to goo, well, mostly completely to goo. And it reforms itself into this new shape. Now, it's not my field expertise, but I do know that there's still a lot that they don't actually know about the process. For example, behavioral biologists, I know this because if you expose a caterpillar to a predatory scent, like a sense, and then you give it some sort of predatory cue. When it becomes a butterfly, it'll remember that scent as a threat. And they have no clue how that happens because it's oh. completely reforming its like entire system. Of course, there are the not-so-glamorous sides to his work as well. Butterflies can actually get kind of gross. They secrete a liquid. Once they emerge, it's a byproduct of the metamorphosis process. So I'm going to clean that up. Once the butterflies emerge from the pupae and their wings harden, Tony collects them and releases them into the forest, which is where they'll live out their lives. And in the forest, they will feed on the fruit and nectar that Tony puts out for them. Technically, the tropical forest is a zoo, so there is a lot for Tony to think about. But it's not all just protocols and feeding checklists. The way I approach the forest is I, I have to look at it in many different ways because part of my job is keeping it running as a zoo and maintaining all the containments, uh, protocols. But also my passion is the science communication and being able to give an experience to visitors. So when they come in, they experience something that they may have never experienced before. A lot of people won't ever be able to visit the tropics. 
And so they'll be able to come in and they'll see species that they'll never, they've never seen before. They'll be in an environment they've never been in before. And we can then use that to pull them in and teach them about ecology and conservation and things like that. One of my favorite experiences is when I'm standing near the tropical forest entrance and I see someone come in for the first time and I just hear them say, wow. And it just reminds me of how magical a place it actually is. You hear that sound that sounds almost like a frog croaking? So those are actually our quails. There's one right next to me here on the bridge and the other one is on the other side of the forest. And one is making the sound and then right away the other one responds. So right now they're just enjoying the peace and quiet of having the waterfall off and being able to just roam around without anyone bugging them except for me. Huge thanks to Dr. Tony Stumbo, Tuhura and Living Environments Coordinator at Otago Museum. Thanks also to my housemates, Jono and Julia, for their help with this episode. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Phil Bench. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. New episodes of Our Changing World come out weekly. To avoid missing an episode, follow the show for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Please help spread the word to others about the show, recommend your favorite episode to a friend, or rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Visit our website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld to see photos and links related to this story and to explore our extensive back catalogue of episodes. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, we are there too. Come and say hi, we're at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai, to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.